You know, I like to imagine sometimes as uh, our choir is singing, they do such a great job as, uh, and I don't know if this will happen or not, but uh, someday in heaven uh, that God might allow us to assemble this choir just like it is. No, seriously. And, uh, and this is one of the songs I want to watch you sing. And uh, what a great, great song. I know they've been working on that for a very long time. What an encouragement to us. And that will be uh, today the focus of our message. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll be in verse 31 in a few moments. If you're using one of the black Bibles in the rack in front of you, it's page 1017. Uh, In about two weeks, we'll be at the 500-year anniversary of uh, the day that Martin Luther uh, took his 95 theses, his 95 complaints against the way the faith was being practiced, and he nailed them uh, to the door of the chapel church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that began what we call the Reformation. And so in the last several weeks, we've been talking about that and talking about how the Reformation really helped uh, the church of that day reestablish the foundations of the faith. Uh, They didn't discover new foundations. They simply reestablished and reaffirmed uh, the biblical foundations of the faith as given to us in Scripture. And so the point of this hasn't been history as much as it's been an opportunity for us to look into God's word and make sure that our faith is established on the right foundation. And so we've looked at four of five pillars that they identified 500 years ago. Uh, We started with sola scriptura. Uh, That's the Latin phrase. And I don't know Latin. I guess I only know five words and I'm going to use them all today. But uh, sola scriptura is the Latin expression for scripture alone, that we get our authority from scripture alone. Uh, The second phrase that we looked at was sola gratia, that we are saved by grace alone. Then we looked at solus Christus, that we're saved by Christ alone. Uh, Sola fide, that we're saved through faith alone. And then today we will look at the fifth and final pillar uh, that they... um, Uh, that they reestablished 500 years ago. But before we do that, uh, and I've got a lot to say today, so you're going to have to listen quickly. Uh, I want to ask the question, has the Reformation, what happened 500 years ago in history, uh, has it really made an impact on the world today? Uh, Are are our lives different because of what happened 500 years ago? And I think the answer is yes, if. If. Yes, if a few things are true of you, then it has certainly made a difference in our lives today. And so let me give you some of those ifs, and then you can determine if it has made an impact in your life. Uh, Now, if you're looking at your outline, this is backwards. So I'm going to start at the bottom and work to the top. Don't let that confuse you. Um, But letter A, the first thing, uh, the, the Reformation of 500 years ago has had an impact today if you have an assurance of your salvation by grace alone through faith alone. If you know that you do not have a right relationship with God because you practice certain ceremonies, if you know that you do not have a right relationship with God because of your good works, if you know that you do not have a right relationship with God because you have viewed relics or purchased indulgences, but you have an assurance of your faith because of the good gift, the grace of God that is yours, because of what Jesus Christ has done and your faith in that. 
then the Reformation has made an impact on your life because that certainly wasn't something that most people could say 500 years ago. Secondly, the Reformation has had an impact if you enjoy owning a copy of the Bible and reading it to discover spiritual truths. If we, as we've talked in recent weeks, uh, at the time of Martin Luther and for a thousand years prior to that, the Bible just wasn't available. Uh, the, the Bible, the very few Bibles there were because uh, the printing press was a relatively new invention. Uh, the very few Bibles there were belonged to the church and you couldn't look at one, you couldn't go see one, you couldn't hold one. And even if you could, you would have discovered that the Bible was written in Latin. It just wasn't available in any language that most people could read. You had to go to the church and get from the church the truth about God. Whatever they said, you had to believe as the truth, and you didn't know if it comported with what the Bible said or not. Uh, in the 14th century, people began to fight against this. You've probably heard of John Wycliffe. And in, in 1330, I believe, John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English. And it caused great, a great uproar. And uh, John Wycliffe did die a natural death, but to punish him for what he did after he died, they dug up his bones and burned them uh, to make sure that others wouldn't do the same, this terrible deed of making the Bible available in the common tongue. But when the Reformation came, all of that began to change. Martin Luther translated the Bible into German. Tyndale translated the Bible into English. Calvin translated the Bible into French. And less than 100 years after the Reformation began, King James, the king of England, authorized an English Bible for the Anglican church, the King James Bible, and many of you probably own one of those today. And all of that was a result of the Reformation. And so if you enjoy having a Bible that you can read today, then the Reformation has made an impact in your life. Now, let me say though something here before we go on to the next one. What is the difference between people not having a Bible to read and people having a Bible but don't read it. You know, there's really no practical difference. In both cases, the Bible is unread. You know, we could look back to the 1517s and we could say how terrible it was that, that people couldn't read the Bible. But if we don't read the Bible today, how much better off are we? I'm afraid today if you were to go to the typical evangelical church and you were to survey them on some theology, you would be amazed at how much they don't know because they don't read the Bible. I, I think if you, if you surveyed the typical evangelical youth group today and you asked them about justification through faith, if you asked them about the authority of scripture, if you asked them about salvation through Christ alone, if you asked them how the Bible operated as the final authority on moral issues, most young people couldn't answer those questions. See, the Reformation has had an impact in your life or is having an impact in your life today only if, in fact, you read the Bible that has been made available to you because of the Reformation. C, uh, the Reformation has made an impact if you value congregational singing. And we certainly value congregational singing at our church. But uh, when the Reformation began and for a thousand years prior to that, uh, people just didn't sing in churches. Singing was done by, um, by monks um, that had been brought in uh, for the inspiration and the entertainment of the people. There was no congregational singing. 
Uh, but Martin Luther embraced Colossians 3.16, which says in part, admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And he began, or he at least reestablished the practice of congregational singing. In fact, Luther is called the father of congregational singing. I was reading this week, historian Terry Johnson wrote this, he restored to the church the singing of praise by the people, which for a thousand years was the preserve of monastic choirs alone. Uh, worshipers must not be relegated simply to the role of observing or being entertained by the singing of others. And so it was in 1517 that Luther tacked his 95 theses to the door. It was in 1524, just seven years later, that Martin Luther wrote his first hymn book. And we sing some of those hymns today. It was in 1539 that Calvin wrote his first hymn book. And we have congregational singing today because of the Reformation. The fourth reason that the Reformation could have an impact today is if you have benefited from universal and compulsory education. Uh, because the reformers believed that reading the Bible was important, they started schools. Uh, they believed that everyone should have an opportunity to read and write, to learn to read and write so that everybody could read the Bible and learn about Jesus. In 1523, Luther uh, began to advocate for universal and compulsory systems of education. He was the first to do so. Uh, Luther said the scriptures cannot be understood without languages and languages can only be learned in a school. Uh, Luther developed a children's catechism to teach children how to read and to teach them the basics of theology. Uh, at the point of the Reformation, new universities began to spring up in Europe everywhere and old universities were revolutionized. Less than a hundred years later, the Puritans who came to America, uh, who were uh, greatly influenced by the Reformation, the first thing, or one of the first things they did when they arrived is they started a school. In 1635, just barely 100 years uh, after the beginning of the Reformation, uh, there were, they started a school in Massachusetts. A pastor had donated 750 pounds sterling and 400 books uh, for the starting of a college for the training of Christian ministers. Uh, that pastor's name was John Harvard. And that began the university system in America. Uh, the Reformation has had an impact on you if you have benefited from university or com uh, universal or compulsory education. Uh, the next one, uh, you have benefited if you see marriage and sexual intimacy in marriage as one of God's greatest gifts. Uh, marriage in the, in the 16th century was simply utilitarian. It was... Uh, a way to hold together a household. It was a way to uh, propagate the population. It was, uh, it was a utilitarian thing. In fact, clergy were banned from marriage because of that, uh, but Luther began to turn things around. In fact, one of the very interesting stories from Luther's life, and I wish I had more time, uh, Luther, when he began to write, his writings just went viral. They copied them and people were reading them all over Germany. And so a group of nuns read his writing. There were nine nuns in a cloister just not very far away from Wittenberg, and they decided that they wanted to escape the system that they were in, and they wanted to embrace uh, these five tenets of the faith. And so they wrote a letter, a secret letter, 
and had it sent to Martin Luther, and it simply said, please rescue us. And so it's an interesting story, and you know, it's, it's like a modern-day cloak-and-dagger kind of thing. And Martin Luther uh, secreted the nuns out of the cloister, and he rescued these five nuns. Now, when, when he rescued them, he knew that his first task was to find them husbands. <laughs> And so Martin Luther started the very first Match.com there in Wittenberg. And he found eight of the nine nuns' husbands. Uh, He was unable to find a husband for Catherine von Bora. Uh, Somebody suggested that he should marry her, and he said, absolutely not. He thought that she was too prideful. And she was a lady with a lot of spunk. She was a very intelligent lady. Uh, So he worked very hard to find her a husband. The first prearranged marriage fell through. The second one, she turned him down. Uh, Now you talk about a blow to your ego. (laughs) If you're the guy to marry the very last nun that nobody can find a husband for and she turns you down, you're not a winner. And so Martin Luther said, okay, well then I will marry her. And uh, in, in the most unromantic thing a man has ever said about a woman, he said, I will marry her just to spite the devil. <laughs> this is true. Well, he married her and he went on not only to, uh, to like her, but to really love her. They had six children. They were married over 20 years before death. Uh, he called her in his writings in the later years, his Lord Katie. Uh, his true love, his sweetheart, and a gift from God. In one letter, he wrote this, I am a happy husband. May God continue to send me happiness from the most gracious woman, my best of wives. Instead of seeing marriage as a necessary evil, uh, the Reformation changed things. Marriage and sexual intimacy and marriage were seen as gifts, and marriage was exalted. And if you would say an amen to that, then you have benefited from uh, the Reformation. Uh, The next one, if you appreciate the primacy of preaching in worship, then you have benefited from the Reformation. Uh, The reformers replaced the altar with the pulpit. Uh, The centerpiece of of, uh, churches before the Reformation, uh, at least in the thousand years prior to the Reformation, was the altar. Uh, Today, it is the pulpit. We no longer measure the effectiveness of a worship service by how many people come to the altar. We measure today the effectiveness of a worship service by how faithfully God's word is preached from the pulpit. And it was a radical change in the church. They redesigned the church so that the pulpit would be in the center of the church and it indicated the central place of scripture. And then they did something that will just seem obvious to you, but was uh, so radical in those days, they said that they would read scripture and preach in the same language that the people knew. Uh, Before that, uh, they did all of this in a language that people did not know. It was simply a ceremony. Nobody knew what was going on. Uh, But uh, the reformers said, no, the preaching of God's word in the vernacular, in the language that people know and speak, it will be the centerpiece of worship. And so if you appreciate that, then we can give thanks for the Reformation. And then the final thing, if you cherish the privilege of praying directly to God and not to a deceased 
person from the church's history, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago uh, and how that came to be. You know, the Reformation made a great impact, and because of that, we're indebted to them, and we have the great responsibility of carrying on biblical Christianity. And so we've looked at sola scriptura, sola gratia, solus Christus, sola fide. And so today we come to the last one. And this is the one I think that holds together the others and really motivates uh, all four of the others and really motivated the Reformation. And it is soli dea gloria, uh, which means the glory of God alone. That we exist, that we serve, that we live and breathe for the glory of God alone. Now that might seem like the most obvious of the, of the five foundations, but I'm telling you it's not. This is the one that people struggle with more than any of them. You know, in our church, nobody's debating uh, sola scriptura. Uh, as far as I know, everybody here believes that the scripture is our authority. Nobody here is, uh, you know, in, in, in a fight about sola gratia. We believe that we're saved by grace. We believe in solus Christus. Nobody's calling for us to worship some, some other God or some other person in the Christian faith. Uh, even if we don't understand it, we're together as much as we can be on uh, sola fide. But, but when it comes to the glory of God alone, here's where we struggle. Because I believe that, that many people who come to church every week and all of us to an extent, for us, it's not sola dea gloria. It's not, it's not for the glory of God alone. For, for many of us, it is sola me. Now, that's probably not good Latin, but it's, it, what we're saying, it, it's about us. I mean, we, 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 we love God and we believe in God and we stand on God's word and we have a relationship with God. But for many of us, for most of us in some ways, our faith is mostly about us. We are the center of the universe. And I can show this to you, I can prove this to you in a few ways. Let's start with Christian books. Now I love Christian books and Christian bookstores and uh, I read a lot of Christian books, but what are, and you may or may not know this, but what are the most popular Christian books today? What are they about? Well, they're, they're about things such as this. How can you overcome stress? How can you have joy? How can you feel forgiven? And, and, and there, there are dozens of books written on all those things every year. Now, what's the common denominator to all of those subjects? You. It's about how you can be better, how you can feel better, how you can do something. That's, that's what most Christian books are about. We could talk about our prayers. What, what are most prayers about? Well, they fall into four categories. Give me, help me, show me, fix for me, right? Give me a new job. Help me overcome this problem. Show me which way I should go. Fix me or fix some relationship. Now, what's the common denominator of all of those prayers? Me. It's all about me. We could look at the common complaints in the church. Now, this is dangerous, but... Uh, I've been in church a long time. I, I know that complaints generally fall into just a few categories. Well, what are the common complaints people have about church? I mean, I mean people who come to church, not people outside the church, but, but their complaints sound like this. Well, I am no longer being fed, or they didn't sing music that I liked, or they didn't visit me. Now, all of those perhaps can be... Uh, 
you know, significant or, or, or founded from time to time. But, but what's the focus of all of those complaints? It's about me. What's the church doing for me? Now, what are the sermons that people enjoy most? I mean, I know this. I've preached a lot of sermons. And I, and I know the sermons that uh, will get the most uh, uh, appreciation from, from people. And you want me to tell you what they are? You already know, <laughs> but I'll tell you what they are. Sermons like this. Uh, what's heaven going to be like when I get there? Now, that's a good sermon. I like preaching that. I'll preach that. I've preached that before. And I, it's in the Bible. We ought to preach it. But, but let me just tell you, that's the kind of sermon that people want to hear. What is heaven going to be like when I get there? Or they want a how-to sermon. And how-to sermons, I mean, none of these are, 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 are bad, but, but, but just look at their favorites. People want to know how to, how to have a great marriage, how to raise godly children, how to have financial success, how to. People love how-to sermons. And, and then people love the God loves you sermon. If, if I just preached every week on God loves you a lot, uh, people would just, would just lick that up. I mean, people would just love that. Now, now all those, I mean, we'll preach all those sermons because they're biblical, but, but, but what's the common theme of the favorite sermons uh, that people desire? It's us. It's us. Do you, do, do you see, for, for most people, for, for, for me, I mean, this, this, this points in all directions. Our faith is not primarily about the glory of God. Too often, our faith is primarily about us. But that's not biblical Christianity. I'm not saying that we're not children of God, but I'm saying that, that in many ways we miss the mark because that's just not biblical Christianity. I love what happened when they built the second temple. Uh, now, you really got to dig in the Bible for this, but, but, but when they rebuilt the temple in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Ezra, they come to Ezra chapter 6, and they, and they finished rebuilding the temple, and, and the people walk in, and they sing something, uh, Andre. They, they sing this song, and you have to sort of cross-reference and all, but the song that they sing is found in Psalm 115. And I think I can show this to you on the screen. Psalm 115, look at the first verse of this song. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your faithful love and because of your truth. What they were saying is, let's don't let this church be about me. Let's don't let worship be about us. The Bible is not about us. Salvation is not even about us. It is about the glory of God. Everything is about the glory of God. From beginning to end, the scripture tells us that God's greatest desire is that his name be honored and then that his name be glorified. God's greatest desire is not, now this will surprise you, some of you, but God's greatest desire is not that you would have a happy marriage. God's greatest desire is not that you would have financial success. God's greatest desire is not that you would be healthy. God's greatest desire is not even that you would be saved. God's greatest desire is that he would be glorified. And if any of these other things happen, the purpose of those things is that they might bring glory and honor to God. God's desire, his one desire, is that his name would be glorified. And I can show this to you in scripture a hundred different places, probably several hundred different places. But let me give you just a few illustrations. Uh, why did God create the earth? Why did God create the earth? Well, Psalm 119.1, I'm sorry, Psalm 19.1 says, he created the earth so that the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. God created everything for his glory. Why did God choose, let's dig a little deeper. Why did God choose to save the people of Israel? 
And so in the Old Testament, that's the major theme of the Old Testament, right? That the nation of Israel was set aside by God for his purposes. Why did God save the nation of Israel? Well, Psalm 106, 8 says, yet he saved them for his name's sake to make his power known. It wasn't about Israel, it was about God. Why did God not abandon Israel? This is the great question of the Old Testament. God sets Israel apart and blesses them and over and over they rebel against God. Why didn't God just wipe them out? Well, he tells us in Isaiah 48, nine, I will delay my anger for the sake of my name. I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise. The, the reason God saved them was so that his name would be honored. And the reason God did not destroy them was simply that his name would be honored. Well, what about the New Testament? What does the Bible say is the reason God offers salvation to us? Well, Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 says it's to put on display his glorious grace. Why does God lead us through the Bible? Why does God lead us in sermons? Why does God direct us? Here's a verse you're familiar with. Psalm 23, 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Do you know the rest of this? He leads me in paths of righteousness for what? His name's sake. It's all for the glory of God. Now you might say, well, that seems awfully self-centered. I mean, God is uh, pretty, pretty stuck on himself, right? Uh, why is it all about God? Well, uh, I, that's another sermon perhaps, but let me, let me touch on it anyway. Uh, there are three reasons why that is not self-centered. Number one, he is God, okay? I mean, he isn't pretending to be something he's not. He is God. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of life. He is the center of everything. Of course, our focus should be on him. He is our creator. Secondly, uh, we were created, we were designed, we were created to bring him glory. And so uh, just as a, um, you know, a screwdriver was not created to nail, hammer a nail in, and a hammer was not created to screw a screw in, you will function best. You will be most satisfied when your life is directed toward bringing God honor and glory because you were created to do that. God made you into an instrument to bring him glory and honor. And when you do anything other than that, you're outside of what God created you to do. You will find your greatest happiness, joy, satisfaction, use the word you want to use when you bring honor and glory to him. And the third reason why it is not self-centered is because for us, we can serve no greater purpose. You know, when you talk to young people, and I think this is true of people of every age, it's just that uh, we burn out on it a little bit as we get older. But especially when you talk to high school students and college students, uh, they'll, they'll tell you that they want to make an impact in this world. They want to make a difference. They want to make their mark in this world. Well, let's just think about that. Whatever kind of mark you make will quickly fade unless your mark is the glory of God. Because nothing else will matter. In the end, nothing else will matter. Not, not, uh, uh, not, not, a, not a plaque on your wall, not a title on your business card, not, not, not an article in the newspaper, not a figure in a bank account. Nothing will matter except the glory of God. If you want to live for something that matters in life, live for the glory of God. This is not self-centered. God demands this. God has created us for this. But this is our greatest satisfaction to bring glory and honor to God. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look at this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, if you're looking at one of our, our Bibles, I, I think I said 
1017, that was the wrong page. I think it's page 1032. I'm, I apologize. Uh, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. No matter what you do, even if it's as, as insignificant as eating or drinking, let us do it all for the glory of God. And so in the few minutes I have left, I, I want to tell you one, two, three, how we can do this, how we can live not for our glory, but for his glory. How do we do everything for the glory of God? Number one, we need to recognize the glory of God. Now this will seem like a minor point, but I, I, I would be uh, amiss if I didn't, if I didn't mention this. The glory of God is not just something that we ascribe to him. God is glorious whether we say it or not, okay? God doesn't need us to call him glorious. God doesn't need us to call him great and holy and wonderful and righteous and, and just for him to be that. God is that. We, we're not ascribing to God glory. We are recognizing God's glory. Does that make sense? And I think every once in a while, what we need to do is we just need to ponder how wonderful God is. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. The very creation tells us that God is, is glorious. We should recognize that. I think we should, I think the way to do that is to meditate on the glory of God, just as, just to sit quietly. Uh, after reading our Bible in a time of prayer and an attitude of prayer, we ought to just sit around occasionally and we ought to just think about how great God is. Let me, let me give you some things to think about. Maybe, maybe you'd think about the fact that God has no beginning and no end. Just think about that. God, if you go all the way back, God was always there. There was never a time when God was not. God has no beginning. That's hard to imagine. But as you ponder that, you're, you're recognizing the glory of God. God has no end. God will never run out. He will never expire. You will never get to the other side of God. God has no end. We, we, we ought to ponder that. We ought to recognize the glory of God. You know, God has never violated his own high standard. Never. Not uh, last week or a year ago or a hundred years ago or a million years ago. God has never violated his own high standard. Not once. God's not even come close to it. God's not ever even been, been, been tempted. God has never even been brought to the edge where, where it was just about this close and he almost messed up. Isn't it amazing that God has never violated his own standard? Uh, God has never been untruthful or unfaithful. Uh, God has unlimited power. There is nothing that God cannot do. There is nothing beyond the knowledge of God. God has never learned something. Nothing has ever dawned on God. God has never been surprised. And so if you ponder on these things, I think the first part of bringing glory to God in everything we do is just to recognize how wonderful, how beautiful God is. He is filled with glory. We must recognize the glory of God. Number two, we must make the glory of God our highest purpose. See, glorifying God, we often think of as singing. That, that we come to church and we sing and we, and we, we, 
we, we sing about the attributes of God and we, and, and we, we sing our appreciation and our wonder about who God is. And that's an, an important thing to do. Something God commands us to do. But, but, but living for the glory of God is not a song. It's not a service. It is a lifestyle. It, it is a priority list. And when, when I get here in the mornings, the first thing I do is, uh, a little software thing, it pulls up a list of all the stuff that I know of that I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, I looked at it on Friday, there are 188 things on the list. And uh, that uh, probably says something pretty bad about me, but uh, 188 things. And so I look at them every morning, every morning, and I I put them in order. Uh, So if you're like 187, you may have to wait a while, but uh, I put them in order. I try to to identify what what are the high priorities today and what are the low priorities. Well, to to live for the glory of God is not just singing a song. It is looking at our life and deciding what is going to be the most important things to me and deciding that the most important thing is the name of God that I would make famous the name of God, that I would bring glory to God, that my life would cause people to honor God, that I would impress people with God. Uh, you know, my prayer on Sunday mornings is, not, is that nobody would leave here on Sunday mornings and say first that the music was great, sorry guys, but that's not our goal, or that people would say it was a good sermon. Now, I want the music to be great, and, and I'm going to do my best to preach a good sermon, but, but the goal is that people would leave here impressed with God, right? How great is God? That's, that's the whole point of all of this. And so we must change our priorities. Let me talk to some different groups of people with this. Uh, if you're in college today, what's your primary objective? Is it to get good grades? Is it to uh, be in some social circle? Is it to uh, graduate? Now, those things could all be important, but the most important thing you should be about is bringing glory to God, is uh, spreading the glory of God and making famous the name of God on your, on your campus. It should be about discovering in your classes how you can prepare yourself for whatever Whatever path that God will put you on, whether it's a secular job or a ministry job, that doesn't really even matter, but that, that, you, would, that you would be prepared so that, so that all the way down that path that you could be an ambassador for God's glory wherever God sends you. That, that should be your main focus as a college student. Well, what about in the business world? Are you leveraging your talents and your resources to pursue your own kingdom so that you would be better off? No, to bring glory to God, we ought to see how can I use my position, my influence, the relationships that I have in this workplace in order to bring glory to God, in order to point people toward God, in order to people, for people to say that man's God or that woman's God is a great God. What about parents? Now, what kind of, what kind of students, what kind of children rather are we, uh, are we trying to raise? What's our goal? Are we trying to raise scholars? Are we trying to raise athletes? Are we trying to raise dancers? <laughs> are we trying to raise socialites? Now, none of those things are bad in them themselves, but as a parent, listen, our greatest priority must be to raise children who will burn bright for the glory of God. And if they succeed in one of those other things, fine. Let that success also be for the glory of God. 
But we ought to be more interested in whether or not our children are going to grow up and, 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 and bring glory to God than we're concerned that they're going to get in a certain college or succeed in a certain field. It should be for the glory of God. The success of any life measured, is measured solely by whether or not your life has been used effectively to bring glory and honor to God. That's the only measure of success that God will use. You know, I think we can see how, how foreign this is in our thinking when we, when we see how people react to the activities of others. And let me just run through a list, and, and maybe this will make sense as we go. Uh, several years ago, six years ago, in fact, we were, uh, Don and I and uh, Hannah and Emily, my, my two oldest daughters, we were in the process of adopting Ray, uh, my youngest daughter. She didn't like me to talk about her. But uh, I'm telling you, uh, there's no greater advocate for adoption than, than me and Donna. Uh, this, Ray has been such a blessing to our life. I cannot imagine life uh, with, uh, without her. And if we had to do it all over again, we'd do it a thousand times or three or four times, <laughs> maybe not a thousand. <laughs> but I remember when we were going through the process, there was a, uh, an elderly lady in the church I pastored and a godly lady, pillar of the church, uh, a lady, when she dies, uh, the pastor will stand at her funeral and say that she was a model Christian and someone who loved the Lord with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. They'll say that of her. So she pulled me aside. She said, Pastor, we need to sit down. We need to talk. And so we sat down in a bench in a hallway in uh, the church. I'll never forget this. And she said, Pastor, what are you doing? God's given you a perfect family. And you've got two great kids. Why in the world would you risk that and adopt another child? Now, I'm usually pretty good at holding my tongue, <laughs> and especially when I'm speaking to someone who is my elder. Uh, but I have never been more tempted uh, to say something I shouldn't have said. But listen, some people just don't understand. It's not about anything but the glory of God. Does that make sense? I had a missions pastor in my previous church, and um, he, uh, he and his wife, he's in his early 30s, and uh, they have three preschoolers, uh, so they have a lot on their plate. God had blessed them with that. Uh, he lives in a tiny apartment in sort of a scuzzy part of town uh, just because we didn't pay him what we should have paid him. And uh, probably shouldn't have said that because we probably have viewers from my previous church watching, but uh, that's the truth. And, um, and so he decided to rearrange his life and rearrange this tiny little apartment he lived in so that he and his wife could begin to take in troubled children in the community that needed a good home, a safe place, and a gospel witness. And people started coming to me as the pastor and saying, why in the world is Rob doing this? Is this part of his job? Are you asking him to do this? And I said, no, you don't understand. This isn't part of his job. This, I mean, he is doing this for no other reason than the glory of God. And I could see on some people's faces that they just didn't get it. But our lives should be led and lived for the glory of God. When you see a, 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 a young, bright, educated person 
leaving the workforce and going into the mission field. And inevitably people will say, what is he doing? Well, he's living for the glory of God. When, when you see somebody who is retired and they're comfortable and life is good and easy and you see them uh, sacrificing and go back into the ministry or work in the church or go on mission trips and, and you wonder, why are they doing that? Why don't they just go and look at the leaves and, and, and catch some fish? Listen, it's, it's because it's for the glory of God. In my previous church, I kept a list. Me and my administrator, we kept a list of 10 things. We always had a list of 10 things that... Uh, uh, that needed to be done, ministry projects that cost a lot of money that we couldn't uh, otherwise take care of. And sometimes they were things with our church, sometimes they were with some of our mission partners. And uh, so we always had this list, and these were all big things. They were, there'd be a couple of $10,000 items on there, but then they went up from there, you know, to 100000 dollars $300,000 items. They were big ticket items. And um, we just kept it with us. We, he and I would get together uh, every few weeks, we'd just pray over the list. And, um, and people would hear about the list, and occasionally, every few months, somebody would come to me and say, Pastor, I'd, I'd like to meet with you about the list. Now, I've got one of these lists here. You know, if you want to meet, I've got some time. Um, and this wasn't something that people could give $100 to or even $1,000 to. This would be, you know, if somebody really wanted to, you know, just do something extraordinary, and they would, we'd sit down, we'd talk about the list, and, and then I would get the privilege of standing before God, and nobody ever knew anybody's names, but uh, I'd stand before, uh, before the church, I should say, and I could say, just last week, somebody wrote a check to do whatever at our church, at one of our mission partners. And, um, and you could see people were excited, but, but people were also puzzled. And these weren't all wealthy people who were doing these things. Some perhaps were, but a lot, a lot of people were cashing into retirement and do, I mean, there were people doing, you know, from all walks of life. And uh, this wasn't anything we pushed or, or even advertised really it. And, and, and people would, would just shake their head and, and they would wonder, why, why would somebody do that? Well, I'll tell you, some people live more than others just for the glory of God. Our lives must be for something bigger than where we're going on vacation and the title on our office door. We must live for the glory of God. Now, the, the third thing, is uh, we must pray first for the glory of God. Our prayers reveal our heart. And it's okay to pray for stuff you want or stuff you need, but let's make sure that our prayers are first for the glory of God. And so if you're praying that God will give you a new job, pray like this. God, give me a new job so that in that new way, in a special way, with new connections, I could bring glory to you in the relationships that you give me. I mean, pray for healing. If you have cancer, certainly pray for healing, but pray that God would strengthen your body so that you could serve and bring him glory and honor. Pray for your kids, but don't just pray that they will be successful. Pray that they will be bright lights for the glory of God. Every prayer you pray, every request you give, you ought to make that request for the glory of God. And if you can't tie your, your request to the glory of God, then don't request it. Because that's what God's interested in doing. God's purpose is, is to bring himself glory. Let us make our prayers first about the glory of God. And then number four, we need to anticipate the glory of God. And um, I was going to, if I had more time, I would preach about the importance of worship. Uh, worshiping, anticipating the day that we will stand with God and see his glory. Uh, but in the um, interest of time, 
uh, let, let, me, let me share something else with you. And, and, and just hang on a minute. We'll, we'll, everybody will have time to close their Bibles and put their stuff up in a moment. We're not going to make you leave without doing that. But let, let, me, share, let me share this with you. Uh, Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. Now you see that verse? You, you see it on the screen? That should be our passion that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the, as the water covers the sea. You know, in the workplace, where do you work? Your prayer for your workplace would be that through your influence, that that workplace would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. Where do you go to school? It's your prayer ought to be that through your influence, that that school would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. Where, where, where do you hang out with friends? Where, where, where do you do hobbies? Where, who, who do you, wherever you go, your prayer ought to be that through your influence, that that place would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to find one way in the places you live, in the places you go, that through your influence, that place could be filled with the Lord's glory. Change my focus. Pray this. Change my focus from sola me, that it's about me alone, to soli dea gloria, that my life be, might be lived for God alone. Now, I thought about some different ways we can end this series of messages. We're going to be somewhere else next week. Uh, we're going to start a series through the book of Proverbs next week. But I want to end this series the best way I can. And I thought perhaps the best way would be to acknowledge one of the, one of the treasures that came out of the Reformation. It's a psalm. It's a hymn. It's a, based on Psalm 46. It was written by Martin Luther in 1527, and you will recognize it. The title is, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in the midst of the Reformation, when the struggle was going on and when Luther was fighting with the enemy... He wrote this song about God's victory in the midst of that. And I want to read it to you. Not all of it, but, but parts of it. And then we're just going to stand. And, and this is an invitation time. If you'd like to come down and make a decision or have somebody pray with you, we're, we're open for that. We encourage you to come. But, but I want us just to end this series by in a moment or two just standing and singing at the top of our lungs and declaring the greatness of God by saying, a mighty fortress is our God. Here, here, here are the words of the song. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. That means that we can go to God as a fortress that will protect us from this world. A bulwark is what stands between us and the enemy. He said, it's, the next line is uh, our helper, he amid the flood. And uh, that's a biblical allusion, but also just to the, the, you know, the flood of difficulties that we face in life of mortal ills prevailing. And then he talks about our enemy. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. He, he says that, that we face a great adversary. The Bible says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so he, he acknowledges that. But then he says, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. 
He said, if we tried to fight on our own, we would fail. He says, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. He said, we need somebody to fight for us. And then he tells us who it's going to be. He says, dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. What he's saying is uh, solus Christus, that our only hope is Christ. And then he ends the song in the fourth verse with these words. Let goods and kindred go. Let's don't let our life be about our stuff. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's what the Reformation was about. And that's what we need to be about in 2017 in Nacogdoches, Texas. May his kingdom come in our church, in our day, and in our lives. Let's pray. Father, make our church, make our lives, our families, our children be for the glory of God alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.